I'm going to pray. <laughs> Father, I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for just allowing us to be able to gather here to hear your word, God. I ask that you would get rid of all distractions, the stress, the anxiety, the work of our weeks, the worst of our weeks, Lord. I pray that you would clear our minds, our hearts, and allow us to be moldable and teachable. Lord, I pray that every single word that comes out of my mouth would be of you and that you would put me aside and that you would allow your word to pierce through hearts today and to transform people, Lord. May you be glorified above everything else. In your name I pray, amen. My name is Sincer. I am an elder at Park and also lead of the uh, medical fellowship at Park. I work full-time in orthopedic surgery and sports uh, medicine, and in October I stepped into eldership. Uh, I'm blessed to have a 23-month-old son, Luke, and a daughter, uh, Miriam, who, that's them in their finest forms, um, <laughs> who turned uh, eight weeks today. So uh, my wife is also an incredible woman. Uh, her name is Tara. She's in the back. If you don't know her, I pray that you will. Interesting fact about my wife, her grandfather was John Troan, and he lived to be 99 years old, and unfortunately, he passed away in 2017. He had a great long life and was a big-time writer. He was a chief editor for the Pittsburgh Press, which was a very successful uh, newspaper in the state of Pennsylvania. And he worked there for about 44 years. In his early 90s, uh, we were having dinner. It was kind of early on in my relationship with Tara. I was courting Tara at the time. And we were at a table with her family. I got up, went to the kitchen to get seconds. And when I went to the kitchen, her grandfather is across the island sitting there, against the island, you know, tight pants, old shirt, hunched over, looking at me, just kind of analyzing me. And if you know anything about me, you know that I am extroverted. And the thought of standing in silence with someone really bothers me. So I go up to him and I say, hey, Mr. Troan, Pop-Pop, as they called him, um, you know, you were born in 1918. Surely you have seen a lot in your life. What's been the most influential event that has occurred in your life? I mean, you've served in the Navy, you went through World War II, you saw the JFK assassination, you witnessed the man on the moon in 9-11. And he looks at me and he says, breaking the story on Dr. Jonas Salk. Now, probably many of you don't know who that is. It's that physician in the center with a white coat. He was credited with developing and introducing the first vaccine against polio called the Salk vaccine in 1955. Next to him is Tara's grandfather, uh, that's uh, John Troen. If you don't know what polio is, it's a viral illness that is contagious and can lead to an infection in your spinal cord, resulting in paralysis. And there isn't a cure for polio, and people sometimes refer to polio as infantile paralysis. And those infected by polio are often dominated by the disease. Their families feel that they don't have any control over it and that the disease has full dominion over them. Polio, in many ways, is similar to sin. Sin can also be so powerful in its infective state that it can literally internally paralyze anyone. I want you to think about three questions today. 
What is your relationship to sin? Does sin have mastery over you? And do you struggle with habitual, willful, conscious sinning that causes you to become internally paralyzed? As we think about these questions and this concept, we're going to dive into Romans 6 where Paul will point us to three essential truths that we're going to discuss today to overcome this internal paralysis. We'll begin in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Paul understands that those who hear him talk about God's grace can and will take this as a free license to sin and completely live apart from any moral law or obligation. It's an important concept. It's the concept of antinomianism. Try to say that. Antinomianism. It's a technical term that literally anti means against, nomos means law, it means against the law. It's the view that Christians are released from the obligation of observing any moral law. It's trying to live life without any obedience to God. It's the idea that you can do whatever you want to do. And I think personally, a lot of people live in an antinomian way. Here's how you know you're an antinomian. If your habitual sin doesn't bother you, you're probably an antinomian. If you feel that your sin is covered because you go to church, because you pray, because you're in a small group, but your life doesn't reflect any obedience to Christ's lordship, you are probably an antinomian. The antinomian's mindset is that if we sin all the more, it doesn't matter because we have grace and radical grace is the champion. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? We should keep sinning so that God can keep forgiving and he can keep giving more grace and more grace and more grace. Grace will abound. And Paul hears that and he, he responds in such a way that causes us to stop. And he says, wait, you've missed it. You guys actually missed it. He answers his own question by saying, by no means. It's important to understand that the language that Paul is using is essentially the profanity of Paul. He uses the phrase, by no means, which translates into, God forbid, it is unthinkable, may it never come into existence, let it not be. It's actually some of the strongest language that Paul has ever used. And he uses this to express his abhorrence and disgust with this mindset. But the question is why? Why is Paul so upset in this moment? He's so upset because the ability to even ask this question demonstrates a failure to understand everything that Paul had just explained in chapters one through five about justification through grace by faith alone. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died 
to sin, still live in it. The focus here is the tense that was chosen for the word died. The original language intends for that tense to be used as a single, past, once and done action. It has been concluded, period. We died to sin. What does he mean by this? How is it true to say of us that we actually died to sin? So now Paul explains this in the next section from verses 3 to 11. We'll start in verse 3. Do you not know? This is when, when Paul starts with that. It means you should know this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul uses the illustration of baptism to demonstrate his point. It's an essential truth. We have union with Christ. See, baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. Baptism reminds us that when we placed our faith in Jesus, we were joined to Christ and to his death and resurrection. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith and commitment to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just like in marriage, a wedding ring, hopefully I don't drop this, a wedding ring symbolizes your union with your spouse. In the same way, baptism symbolizes our union with the Lord. The Lord gave the church two sacramental ordinances, basically prescribed practices. He says, baptism by water, full immersion, the dunk, and then communion. And the picture of baptism, an individual is submerged into water. When you are submerged under water, for a moment, it is like you are tasting death. You cannot see, you cannot speak, you cannot hear, you cannot breathe. It's like you are tasting death. Romans 6 verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. We are dead to the power of sin. But see, baptism doesn't stop after that submergence. What happens? When you baptize someone, when you submerge them into water, you then bring them out of water. And what happens? They can see again. They can hear again. They can speak again. They can breathe again. And the best part is that when they come out of water from baptism, everyone in the church goes wild, right? They go wild and they celebrate. And you hear all of these cheers from your church family. That's a picture of the resurrection with Christ and heaven with your family of believers. This is a picture of death and resurrection. Just like Jesus died and rose from the grave, when we are baptized, we also have union with Christ. We, in the same way, we are proclaiming that our old self has died and that we are alive in Christ. Baptism is a picture of someone being united with Jesus, experiencing transformation. Last week, we discussed that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In a similar manner, 
When Christ died, all Christians died with him because we are joined to him. Whatever is true of him is now legally true of us. As we sinned with Adam, we died with Christ. And this is something that's just not in Romans. It's demonstrated throughout Scripture. Colossians 2 verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised from the dead. Colossians 3 verse 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 John 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Behind me, you'll see a slide that demonstrates throughout Scripture there's evidence to support that the believer is united and connected to Christ. We have a union with Christ. And just as our union with Christ means we died to the rule and reign of sin, our union with Christ allows us to be under the rule and reign of grace. The Lord's death and resurrection brought the end for believers to the reign of sin. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has decisively changed the relationship of sin's position to you. You didn't die simply to the guilt of sin. You, didn't, you died to the reign and the rule of sin. And the Lord's death and resurrection brought the reign of sin to an end for all believers. The reign of grace is actually working upon you now. And one day you will be brought to the utmost perfection. Now, I don't want you to miss this point. We all struggle with sin. If you struggle with anger, if you struggle with laziness, with pornography, with lust, with addiction, with money, with greed, with selfishness, or maybe you struggle with a secret sin that no one knows about, Maybe you've been living this way for several years. And maybe you felt like you know what's right, but you just can't live right. Listen to scripture and understand that if you are a believer, sin has no power over you. The power that is within us is the reign of grace. And the object of that grace is to destroy sin and all the works that actually belong to it. It's if the power that is within you is holy and righteous and alive in you, and it's actively destroying sin in you, how can you continue to live in it? Paul continues in verse 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one has died, has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
This is exciting because our tie to Adam is severed. Behind me is an important parallel. Our union to Christ is an important parallel of the redemptive stages of the Christian identified with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4, Paul goes through three redemptive stages. He says, Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. We who believe have participated with Christ in each of these events as demonstrated in Romans 6. We died with him, Romans 6, verse 3, 5, 6, and 8. We were buried with him, Romans 6, verse 4. We will be raised with him, Romans 6, verse 5 and 8. Baptism, the outward expression of our inward faith, is a symbolism of our whole conversion experience. By it, we have been brought into union with Christ and the events of his redemptive work that was completed at the cross. This now allows us to embrace and live a new life. Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Our identification with Christ means that we are no longer dominated by sin. We are not slaves to sin. Sin's power has been broken over us, and our new lives should demonstrate this new freedom in Christ Jesus. That's the power of Christ's resurrection. As a church, I don't think that we actually understand the power behind this message. Think of your relationship to sin. Does sin have mastery over you? Think about that. Do you struggle with habitual, conscious, willful sinning? Is your sin all-consuming and pulling you away from the holiness of God? If you embrace our new identity, if you understand baptism and this union with Christ, you are embracing a new hope and a new life with freedom. Imagine what change would take place if we came to church with this type of mentality. Imagine the change that would not only take place in our church, but in our city. Think about the encouragement that your brothers and sisters would experience within the church because you are living a life that's actually transformed by Christ's lordship. God has called you to pursue holiness. He has actually called you up and out of sin. The power of God, once you accept him, transforms your heart and your life, causing you to undeniably live differently. You cannot live the same. Sin doesn't have power over you. 
This is the second truth. Those who are in Christ are under the reign of grace, not the reign of sin. Let that sink in. Sin oftentimes is portrayed in Scripture as a power or a master that can exercise control over people. If you have given your life to Christ, if you are saved by God, Christ has delivered you from the reign of sin. In verses 11 to 14, Paul explains that even though sin has no power over us, it doesn't mean that we are incapable of sinning and that we're not tempted with sin or that we do not struggle with sin. Romans 6 verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Brother and sister, is this true for you? Do you actually walk around every day? When you leave here today, will you go about your normal life embracing this truth? When you go to work, when you're in your office, in your setting, whatever work environment you are, do you actually feel this way? Do you have this mindset that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? Because if you do, that is a liberating hope. You are dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul never says that sin is dead. He says that we are dead to sin but sin still remains in our mortal bodies. Although the relationship with sin has changed. It's because sin remains in our mortal bodies that we are always at war with sin. Sin is actively trying to dominate our bodies. Sin is seeking for us, as verse 12 said, for us to obey and submit to the passions and lust of sin. And the Bible warns of this, 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sin is in our mortal bodies. It is not eradicated out of us. At times, you may feel as though sin is dominating you. You may feel that it's never-ending and maybe it's gone on for years and years, and years, and years. And the world will look at you and tell you, hey, because you struggle with sin, you are weak. You are defeated. You should feel worthless. You should feel depressed. You should feel ashamed. You should feel hopeless, and you should feel guilty. And you're paralyzed by your sin and the sinful nature and you might be thinking this right now. You might be thinking, if you only knew how screwed up I really am. 
But listen, even if all of that is true, Christ is looking at you and he says, I still want you. I still want you. He says, you are mine. He says, it doesn't matter. Because of what I did at the cross, you don't need to fear. You don't need to feel ashamed. You don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to feel hopeless. You don't need to feel depressed because of what I did at the cross. You have a new life. I mean, that has to be exciting, right? That is liberating hope. You might be sitting here right now feeling that you are in this repetitive cycle of habitual sin and even questioning if you're really saved, if you're truly a believer. Listen, we are all broken. We are fallen, sinful people who sickly try to twist and manipulate and willingly destroy the holiness of our God for our gain. It's our sinful nature. And some churches even preach on this topic. They say that you can lose your salvation, that you're a backslider. I actually grew up in this type of environment in this church, and for the longest time I believed it. But let me be clear on something, and we have to embrace this. It's wrong. It is wrong. You cannot ever fall from God's grace. You cannot ever fall from God's grace. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ, period. You will never be bound by sin. You will never be under the bondage or imprisonment of sin, and you will never taste death if you are in Christ. That's exciting, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that you're not going to be tempted by sin or that you're not going to struggle by sin, but for the believer, you are not under the dominion, the control, or the reign of sin. The third essential truth is that we are called to pursue holiness. You see, for the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Christ, when they sin, they do it under the reign of sin because they are a slave to sin. When the believer sins, you are actually sinning as a free person just choosing to do what's wrong. You know what's right. You know what God has called you to do and how he has called you to live, but yet you're consciously choosing to continue in sin. And the devil will take any instance in which you fall into sin as an opportunity to take you away from the holy and righteous God. The devil will convince you that you were never a Christian to begin with, that you're not saved, you don't know the Lord. And the pattern is that you sin, you feel the guilt, you feel the shame, you feel the hopelessness, and then you go back to God and you repent and you pray and you say, God, please save me, please save me again. I'm so broken. I'm sorry, Lord, save me again. And you pray this over and over and over and over and over again. And you're hoping by doing so, 
that you can actually secure your salvation. You beg God for forgiveness, but then what happens? You've now gone through this whole cycle, and what happens? It happens again, and it happens again, and then it happens again. If you understand Romans 6, you will never do this again. I'm not saying that you won't be tempted by sin or that you won't struggle with sin, but as a believer, you are not under the dominion, control, or reign of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks on this topic by giving two illustrations. The first is a mountain climb. Imagine you're climbing a mountain and you're at the bottom and you fall. If you fall at the bottom, fine, you fall. But then you're, as you're climbing, you're maybe five feet away from the summit, pretty high up. If you fall a second time, that doesn't mean that you fall all the way to the bottom. You're closer to the summit and you're pursuing holiness. The second example is imagine two fields. Every person begins their life in one field that is ruled by Satan and sin. There's no chance of scaling or escaping this field. The walls are too high. But God in his grace reaches down, takes you, and puts you in the adjacent field that he is ruling with grace. A whole new decisive change in our position to that field has now occurred. We are now in a new relationship to sin. However, in this field, you can still hear Satan calling your name. And out of habit, sometimes you'll obey it. But it doesn't mean that you're under the dominion of that field. You are now under the dominion of grace if you are in Christ. Let's, let's get real about this. When you are meeting with God, are you reflecting on your sin? Do you actually take time to reflect on your sin? The real question to ask is, do you long for holiness? If the Holy Spirit is in you, living in you, you will long for a holiness. You can try to ignore it, but for the Christian, it won't go away. Because Christ lives in you, he lives in the believer. The Christian has a conviction to pursue holiness and to glorify God. You will long for this. The test is this. See, a Christian, a Christian who sins even in a repetitive cycle, even in this habitual cycle for years, will hate it. They will hate what they are doing and they are miserable as they are sinning because they have Christ living in them. The unbeliever or the person who is never a Christian or was never a Christian can return to sin and enjoy it and feels sometimes that it was a mistake to even give it up. But sin repulses and grieves those who are in Christ and those who believe. Just like we learned about justification by grace through faith, God looks at us and if you are in him, he says, I remember no more. There is no sin in you. He forgives our sins freely. We have a new covenant. In the old covenant, God gave the people laws on stone tablets. Now we have a new covenant. Laws are in our minds and written in our hearts. And as you walk around, for the Christian, 
the word of God and God, it's embedded into your being. When I started the sermon, I told you about John Troan, Tara's grandfather in polio. The most influential event in his lifetime was breaking the story on the polio vaccine. Before the vaccine, little could be done to prevent those infected by polio to not be dominated by this disease or this paralysis, and families felt like they had no control. On April 12, 1955, this is the actual headline that's going to come up behind me, where the world heard one of the most historic headlines to have ever been printed in medical history. Polio is conquered. When people read this, they, when they heard this, when they received this news, they felt a liberating freedom from the disease and the paralysis of polio. For the believer, we have the good news. We have the gospel. We have much more than a vaccine. We have truth that sin and death have been conquered. You might be weak, but the power of God is strong. Oftentimes at the end of our services, we give a benediction. And oftentimes we'll read from Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, according to the power at work within us. The power of God is within you and is strong. We will reach a day where we are spotless, where we are blameless, where we're in a glorified condition in God's original design for man. We will be in a world without separation from him. We will be in a world without sin without our mortal bodies in a glorified body. We can freely live now without depression, hopelessness, guilt, feeling ashamed, and we can look forward to the glory that is coming. We can pursue holiness and work on becoming more Christ-like. We will never experience defeat because sin has no power and death has no sting. If you are in Christ, your eternity is forever secured and sealed. If you are in Christ, your eternity is forever secured and sealed. Romans 8.1, there, th there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you leave today, you should feel liberated. You should feel liberated from sin and secured in your salvation. The believer has been justified through grace by faith. The believer has union with Christ. The believer is under the reign and rule of grace, not the reign of sin. The believer is a continuous work of sanctification that is called to pursue holiness and will not continue to live in sin, but will live a life that's actually transformed because they are in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in them.
For the believer, one day, we will finally experience glorification to God's fullest intent and desire. Romans 6 is freeing and has liberating truths. Amen?